John 14, if you turn there. In the Bible, there are 31,173 verses. That's a lot of different texts. Just a little over 23,000 reside in the Old Testament. 7,959 are New Testament verses. Of all of those verses in the Bible, some of them you have underlined. You certainly don't have all of them underlined. It would be a, a wasteless exercise to do that. But you have some of them underlined, and probably the ones that you have underlined are promises. Promises that God has made to man. Promises that you have said, God made it to me tonight, this morning as I read it. There's a lot of promises in the Bible. Time magazine some years ago featured a a man from Kirchner, Canada who read the Bible through 26 times and on his 27th time, it took him a year and a half to do this, he tallied up all of the promises that God had made to man in the Bible and came up with the number 7,487 promises God made to us. In case you're wondering, that averages about 20 and a half promises every day that you can lean upon. But you know, a promise is only as good as the one making the promise is. If a person is reliable by nature, you know that his word is reliable. We know that God's character is is stellar, it's perfect. Joshua said, deep in your hearts, you know that every promise the Lord has made has come true. Not one single promise has failed, he said. Peter spoke about the promises of God. He called them precious. Not only that, he called them great and precious promises. But that's not all. He said they're exceedingly great and precious promises. God's promises are trustworthy because God Himself is trustworthy. But if the one making the promises is himself or herself unreliable, then those promises are also unreliable. A person may make certain promises and might forget about them or might be unable to keep them or might be a liar. And if you know the person is a liar, over time you don't trust that person anymore. I read something interesting. In a, in a poll conducted, 91% of all Americans lie regularly. They admit to that. Maybe that's the only time they were honest. 91% say they lie regularly. 36% say they're really big lies. In this report that I refer to, it says men lie more than women. Refrain from comment. (laughs) Young men lie more than older men. The unemployed lie more than the employed. The poor lie more than the rich. And liberals lie more than conservatives. I could have told you that. 
Uh, who do we lie mostly to? Well, according to the same poll, we lie most to our first parents, in this order, parents, friends, third, siblings. Who do we lie least to? We are least likely to lie to doctors, for obvious reasons, accountants, for obvious reasons, and lawyers, for obvious reasons. <laughs> Yet the same poll said we believe, 42% of us believe that we're lied to by lawyers. I don't know how that works. But you contrast that to perfect God. Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. He is not a human that he should change his mind. Has he ever promised and not carried it through? You answer that tonight. Has God ever made you a promise that he hasn't carried through? Not in your timetable, but in his. But what do you do with God's promises? You might say, I know, I know. I underline them. (laughs) Or you might say, I know, I know. I memorize them. No, you should say, I believe them. I stand upon them. I live my life by them. In the early days when this country was first being settled, a man came to the Mississippi River in early winter when there was a, a sheet of ice over the river. There was no bridge. He needed to cross it by nightfall. Night was encroaching. Unsure of the thickness of the ice, he went very carefully, slowly, with great trepidation, got down on his knees, and on all fours, he's making his way across the ice. When he's about halfway out in the river, he hears behind him singing, and he looks back in time to see a a wagon pulled by horses filled with coal going right over the river. And the guy's singing as he goes. Now here he is with the load going across, singing, and the man is on all fours, cautiously going across the ice. There's a song that is sung by many churches, Standing on the Promises. We, we ought to learn that one. It's a good one. Standing on the Promises of God. But some of us could not sing that song because we don't do that. We would honestly sing creeping on the promises of God, like the man going across the river. Or, for some of us, sitting on the premises rather than standing on the promises. We had to stand on them. This is the last night, remember, that Jesus spends with His disciples. The name of the series is The Night That Changed Everything. It's a series on discipleship because Jesus speaks words to His disciples and prepares them for the inevitable he already, he already spilled the beans. He said, I'm leaving you. They're very discouraged. To meet the discouragement, Jesus makes several promises. Some of them we've already read. He promised that though He would leave, He would prepare a place for them and that He would come back and get them. He already promised that the work of Christ wouldn't end, but it would continue. In fact, they would do greater works. And He promised that they wouldn't be left alone that the Holy Spirit would come and abide with them. He would be their constant helper. Now, Jesus makes four more promises, beginning in verse 19 down to verse 24. He says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, and it says in parenthesis, not Iscariot, because Judas had already left the room, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my word, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The first promise in verse 19 is the promise of supernatural life. Look how Jesus spins that to them. A little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now Jesus is about to die. He will be arrested soon, and in a few hours he will be crucified. But he's saying to his disciples, you're going to see me again. And they did see him. After his resurrection, he appeared to them. They saw him alive. But Jesus must be referring to something else other than just his resurrection because notice he says, you shall live also. And perhaps he's now going way into the future to the time when after their death, there will be their resurrection. But something else. Though he might imply his resurrection and their resurrection, it seems by the language, by the context of the fulfillment of the rest of these promises, that Jesus is speaking of, um, of an imminent experience, something they're going to experience, some kind of, of life they're going to experience now. Not just future in the resurrection, but now. I read this text this week, and, and the first thing that came to my mind was a bumper sticker. It was a bumper sticker I saw, it must have been, oh, years ago. It said, without Jesus, you ain't living. And it wasn't written by a college major, uh, in English, obviously, but it was a a poignant message. Without Jesus, you ain't living. And what I liked about it is that it was on a, wasn't on a Mercedes or a Jaguar, but a beat-up Volkswagen van. And you know, I know a lot of people who have a lot of nice things and they have a nice job and everything's nice, but they're not really living. Without Jesus, you ain't living. Because I live, you also shall live. He's describing an experience of life that we can enter into right now. Psychologist by the name of William Martson interviewed 3,000 people asking them a singular question. He said, what do you have to live for? This professional found to his shock that 94% were simply enduring the present, waiting for something else. And he wrote some of those things down. They're waiting for the future. They're waiting for something else to happen. They're waiting for next year, waiting for better times, waiting for someone to die You can have physical life, but be dead spiritually. You can go through the motions of biological life, psychological life, but be dead. That's what the Bible often refers to. Ephesians 2, the Bible says, And you He has made alive who were once dead 
in trespasses and sins. In the book of Revelation, to the church of Sardis, Jesus says, I know your works, and I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He said that to church people. Every day, you encounter dead people in this sense, in the spiritual sense. You meet them at the bank, you see them at the store, they drive next to you. You can say, ah, now I know why they drive so poorly. They're dead. No, but spiritually they're dead. (laughs) Some of you will remember a movie. I refer to it because I love it so much. It came out a few years back called Princess Bride. Do you remember that film, any of you? Okay, the scene that's classic is when uh, the, the hero named Wesley is taken by his two friends, Inigo Montoya and Fezzik, to the house of Miracle Max. And uh, they bring this dead guy to Miracle Max to revive. And Miracle Max lays him on the table and starts speaking to the guy, saying, what do you have to live for? And Inigo Montoya says, sir, he cannot hear you, he's dead. And Miracle Max says, oh, you know so much. Well, I have news for you. Your friend is just mostly dead. (laughs) And there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. Let me tell you that apart from Christ, and I'm going to explain, people are mostly dead. Because in the New Testament, there are three words that describe life. Three different terms. First of all, there is the term bios or bios. We get the term biology, biosphere, the prefix bio. It simply means life on the physical realm. It is rarely used in the New Testament, interestingly enough, and when it is used, it is usually used negatively. For example, Jesus spoke about the seed that fell among the thorns that was choked up by the pleasures of this life biological life. In 1 John chapter 2, John speaks of the pride of life, same term. Yet, this is where most people spend most of their time and energy and money is biological life. I read one poll where people were asked, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Guess what the answer was? Appearance. All of the things revolved around appearance. They want to change their age, the color of their hair, their body type, their weight, their face. In fact, at the end of this poll, the author said, basically, Americans want to be thinner and live longer. That's where Americans spend a bulk of their focus is on bios, biological life. That's all they have. Then the New Testament uses a second term, suke where we get the term psyche or psychological. It's the inner thought life, what's going on inside. Jesus said, he who wants to save his life, suke, inner life, must surrender it, let it go. But you can have a very healthy biological existence and active psychological life and still be mostly dead. That's because there is a third term. It is used here. And it is used in several other places. It's the word zoe. Zoe. It's a theological New Testament term that takes the focus off the earthbound onto the heavenly. It's used 143 times in the New Testament. 
zoe. Sometimes it's translated eternal life, everlasting life. A better translation is age-abiding life. It speaks not necessarily of, of longevity as much as quality. Let me clear something up, by the way. Every single human being has eternal life in the sense of living on and on and on and on. But not every one of us has a quality of life that will last here and throughout all of eternity in heaven. The issue isn't, am I going to live forever? It's, where am I going to live forever? Am I going to live in Christ or outside of Christ? And then am I going to live in heaven or hell? Zoe. Age abiding life. By the way, this eternal life that the Bible speaks about and that Jesus speaks about here begins now. It's not like when I die, it happens now. For Jesus said, this is, present tense, eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he also assured us, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and has passed from death into life. So it begins now. It's a quality of life that begins right now. You will have supernatural life. You'll live differently than other people live. I've read an article. It was by Richard Armstrong. He he tells about a, a biologist experiment where the biologist took caterpillars. He called them in the article processional caterpillars and put them on on the rim of a clay pot. Now picture it. They were stretched out head to tail, connecting all the way around. And they marched. And they marched. And they marched for a week solid. Without breaking, without stopping. And they all died of starvation and exhaustion. Isn't it interesting that not one of them broke the line and said, you know, there's a plant in the middle of this pot, and there was. I'm going to eat something before I continue the march. But they kept marching to their death. And that is a parable of so much of human behavior that people march, 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 work, play, work, sleep, work, play. They keep going in their little routines, and they never break and enjoy real life, real life. The spiritual zoe, age-abiding life that Jesus speaks about. There's a second promise. It's the promise of supernatural knowledge, verse 20. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. The first promise was life. The second promise is knowledge. You're going to know something. By the way, the term here means to know something by experience. You're not going to just read it in a book and underline it and go, that's cool. You're going to know it because you've experienced it. That's the knowledge Jesus refers to. In that day, you're going to know something by experience. And have you noticed in reading the Bible that for the disciples, after the resurrection, there was this this sudden awareness, this knowledge that they came into that was different than before. They, they realized who Jesus really was. They realized He was the eternal Son of God, that He was God in human flesh. They figured that out. It dawned on them. And that's what Jesus promises. After the resurrection, when you're really living, you're going to know just how close the Father and I are and the relationship that you and I have. You're going to know that by experience. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but whatever day it was, whatever afternoon or evening, when it suddenly dawned on the disciples who it was they'd been hanging out with for three and a half years. Wow. That, 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 that sermon that I heard, those parables, God spoke those. those. Those miracles, those people who were dying with leprosy and healed instantly, no wonder God touched them. Jesus was God in human flesh. Listen to John's realization. This is 1 John chapter 1. The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ, the very word of life. Dawned on them. Now they know it. They know it by experience. Now, had Jesus only died without resurrecting from the dead, this knowledge wouldn't be possible. If Jesus would have just come to this earth, said some nice things and died and never rose from the dead, the best we could say about him is he was just a good guy, a good man, a great example, a wonderful teacher. But the resurrection validated all of his claims. Now we go back and read Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And it all makes sense. The resurrection made that possible. The resurrection, folks, separates the men from the boys, the real Messiah from all the wannabe messiahs. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad did not rise from the dead. Krishna did not rise from the dead. Deepak Chopra will not rise from the dead. Jesus Christ did. And that's why we can enter into an experience with Him now. There was an old legend that says a man wandered from a path and fell into quicksand. And as he was calling out in the quicksand, four figures, four people came by. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, and Jesus. First was Confucius, and Confucius saw the man in the quicksand and said, It is evident that men should stay out of these places. No power, he walked by. Buddha came by and saw him and studied it a while and said, Let this man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. In a little bit, Muhammad walked by and being the deterministic fellow that he was, said, Alas, it must be the will of God. But then Jesus came by, put out his hand and said, Give me your hand and I'll save you. And that's the difference. Jesus can still save people because Jesus is the only guy still around. He rose from the dead. And with that new life that he gives, we know that. We've experienced it. It's real for us. We know it by experience. The principle here is that only when God plants His life deep within us can we understand the real truth of who Jesus Christ is. It's only then that we get it. God has to plant His life within us. He opens up our eyes spiritually. And we go, now, now I see. I know. I know by experience as well as objectively. And you know, When you do come to know that, you can tell it in a person's life, can't you? You can tell if a person really knows the truth about Jesus because there's a confidence. 
think about Peter denying Jesus one night and think of him a few weeks later in Jerusalem to the point of, of martyrdom, if need be, preaching that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that Jerusalem should repent. Very confident, very different. Why? Resurrection and this knowledge of who Jesus was. What about Thomas? As soon as he saw the risen Lord, my Lord and my God, he said, with great confidence and boldness. So the disciples came alive with power. They came alive with excitement. They came alive with boldness. They were changed. And when you come to Jesus Christ, He puts His life in you. You understand who He really is. You understand. It settles you. You go, ah, I don't have to wonder. I don't have to worry. I don't have to just hope on a thread. I found a Peanuts cartoon. Charles Schultz, great, great cartoonist. And there are several blocks of these little cartoons. And the first one, by the way, it begins by showing uh, Lucy and Linus staring out of a window watching the rain come down. And, and Lucy says, wow, is it pouring outside. I think the world might flood. Frame number two, Linus says, oh no, it'll never flood because back in Genesis 9, God promised he would never flood the world again. And the evidence of that is the rainbow. Third frame, Lucy goes back, stares out the window with a big smile on her face and says, Thank you, Linus. You've taken a great load off my mind. Last frame, Linus says, Sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) And from your vantage point, whatever window you're looking out of and seeing the storms in your life, you're settled Sound theology as a way of doing that you know objectively and subjectively by experience. That's a promise. There's a third promise Jesus makes, verse 21. It's a promise of supernatural revelation. Notice, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now there's an interesting word I want you to ponder. Manifest. It's an old word. It means to show, to disclose, to unveil. I'll unveil myself. I'll disclose myself. I'll I'll, I'll show who I am more and more to this person. After a person comes to, to Christ... You become a Christian. You have that, yes, I know now. Yes, my eyes are open. Now I get it. Something else happens. You have a desire that develops in you to know Him more. Right? You want to know Him more. You have a hunger and a thirst. You've noticed this. Uh, Things that you used to think were boring before, now you want to do them. Where's my Bible? i got to read my Bible. Before, if somebody gave you a Bible, you go, what? You don't like me? I mean, as a non-Christian, I wasn't reading my Bible. As a non-Christian, I wasn't hungering and thirsting to come to church. I didn't want to tell people about Jesus or worship. But that change happens. Now that I know Him, I want to know Him more and more and more. It's like a young couple. They can't get enough of each other. He wants to see her more and spend more time with her. Jesus makes a promise, I'll manifest myself to Him. Now, that's an important promise because unless Jesus Christ 
took the initiative to manifest himself to you, you'd never really know him. I'll give you an example that will clear that up. Whenever we meet someone in life that is, for lack of a better term, above us, in professional skill or in status in life or in intelligence, knowing them is more of a result of them allowing us to know them than us saying, you know what, I just want to spend a lot of time with you. If you meet the President of the United States, Prez, W, I'm going to call on you. We're going to hang out. Oh, really? He might exchange some some courteous kind of formalities with you, but he has to open that door. It's him, not we, who decide to have a deeper relationship. Now, he may say, I'm going to call on you more often. Let's play golf together. I want to, I want to bounce some foreign policy issues off of you. That would be his choice, not yours. Jesus Christ says, I will manifest myself to them. And this is what I want you to hear. The truth is, Jesus wants you as his friends. John chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants. I call you my friends. I want you to know more about me. I want to reveal myself to you. Do you ever wonder what God thinks about you? Honestly, what God thinks about you. What, what thoughts go through his divine mind when your name pops up? You say, well, God loves me. I mean, that I know. I mean, he sort of has to, being God. He does that. He loves people. But some of you wonder, does he like me? He calls you his friend. He does like you. I hope that dawns on you. God likes you. Remember Sally Fields when she got the Oscar and she said, You like me. You really like me. Hey, God really likes you. He calls you his friends. He wants to disclose more and more of himself to you. And he promises to do it, but there's a condition in the same verse. He says, He who keeps my word. You have to obey him. That's how it works. You come to know Christ, you're forgiven. But if you really want to know him intimately, you've got to obey him. Got to obey him. Have you met those conditions? You will never enjoy the fullness of Jesus Christ without an obedient life. Did you know that? Arthur Pink says concerning this verse, the manifestation of Jesus Christ is made only to the one who really loves him and the proof of that love is not emotional displays but submission to his will. The Lord will give no direct and special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. Here's how it works. If you obey Jesus Christ, He will increasingly reveal His heart, His will, His, His intimate thoughts to you. And you'll grow because of it. But if you continue a life of disobedience, He ceases to reveal Himself to you and you find yourself withering up, your love for Him weakens. And personally, I know lots of people right now that come to my mind who have an arrested state of spiritual development. They may think God is close to me and talks to me, but He's not. God has nothing more to say to them until they obey Him. And your love for Him will weaken. But His desire, His promise is, there'll be special secrets I'll talk to you about. But you have to do what I say. There's a fourth, and we'll close with this. It's the promise of supernatural presence. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now that answer to Judas is part of the, very, is part of the last promise, but there's a, a separate one. But it's part of the last one. Because Judas goes, no, wait a minute. You say you're going to manifest yourself. To, why don't you manifest yourself to the world? Jesus' whole point is, I reveal myself to obedient ones. A worldly person isn't an obedient one. They haven't come to me in repentance yet. That's the first step. How do we, how do we practically manage the revelation, the, the information that comes to us about Jesus Christ that we read in the Bible? How do we convert the knowledge about Him into knowledge of Him, personal relationship stuff? I'll give you four little quick pointers. Number one, ponder. Number two, praise. Number three, pray. Number four, practice. This is how it works. You read something. You ponder it. You think about, how does that apply to my life? After you ponder, you praise Him. Thank you, God, for loving me enough to reveal this to me about yourself and about myself. Then three, you pray. God, help me to remember this principle tomorrow when I am apt to forget it. Bring it to my mind. Work this truth in my life. And then practice it. Make a decision to obey and to practice that. When you do that, something happens. Verse 23 at the very end. We will come to Him and make our home with Him. I love this. Because another translation would be, I'll settle down and make myself at home in that person. The word is monet. It's the same word Jesus used in the... In the first or second verse in my father's house, there are many mansions. It's a place that you build to live in for a long time. I'm going to make, and my father is going to make, we're, we're going to make our home in that person's life. Now back in verse, I think, 18, Jesus promised that he would come to them. In verse 16 and 17, he promised the Holy Spirit would come and live within them. Now he's saying the son and the father will make themselves at home. So the whole triune God will come and live in an obedient life, make themselves feel at home. An obedient Christian makes God feel at home. You know what a disobedient Christian makes God feel like? An unwelcome guest. You ever been in somebody's house and, don't touch that. And, and they, you don't even know if they like you. You just sort of sit there. You don't feel welcome. God feels that way in the life of a disobedient believer. But I'll make myself, we'll make ourselves at home in the life of these who do this. New life is in them. They know who I am. As I reveal myself to them, they're putting it into practice and I'm revealing more. And when that happens, I will feel at home in that life. I want to close with um, a little booklet. Not all of it, just a couple paragraphs. You have seen me, you have heard me read this every few years. It's one of the best things you could ever read. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Munger. And he pictures your heart, your life, like a real house. And he says, After Christ entered my heart, in the joy of that newfound relationship, I said to him, Lord... I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want you to settle down here and be perfectly at home. 
Everything belongs to you. Let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of the home that you may be more comfortable, that we may have a fuller fellowship together. He was glad to come and, of course, happier still to be given a place in the heart. The first room is the library, the study. Let's call it the study of the mind. Now, in my home, this room of the mind is a very small room with very thick walls. But it is an important room. In a sense, it's the control room of the house. He entered with me and looked around at the books in my bookcase, at the magazines upon my table, at the pictures on the wall of my mind. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt badly about this before, but now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books there that his eyes were too pure to behold. There was a lot of trash and literature on the table that a Christian had no business reading. And as for the pictures on the wall, the imaginations and thoughts of my mind, these were shameful. I turned to him and said, Master, I know that this room needs a radical alteration. Will you help make it what it ought to be? To bring every thought into captivity to you? Sure, he said. Gladly I will help you. That is one reason that I am here. First of all, take all of the things you're reading and seeing that are not helpful, pure, good, true, throw them out. Now, put on the empty shelves books of the Bible. Fill the library with scriptures. Meditate on them day and night. As for the pictures on the wall, well, you will have difficulty controlling these images. But here is a help. And he gave me a full-sized portrait of himself. Hang this right in the center, he said, on the wall of your mind. I did. I've discovered through the years that when my thoughts are centered upon Christ and himself, his purity, his power will cause impure imaginations to retreat. So he helped me to bring my thoughts into captivity. May I suggest to you that if you find difficulty with this little room of your mind, that you bring Christ in there. Pack it full of the Word of God. Meditate upon it and keep it ever before you in the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. Then he takes Jesus into the dining room where his appetites are, where he looks for things to be satisfied in life. He takes Jesus then into the drawing room where there's quiet, big couches to meet with him every day. He takes Jesus into the work room where he produces things for the kingdom of God or not. And then he takes him into the rumpus room where his, uh, his playtime is, his leisure activities the end of the book features the hall closet. I'm not going to read it to you, but basically Jesus stands out on the porch and says, something in your house stinks and I'm going to clean it out. The guy goes, I know what it is. It's the hall closet. I have held on to some practices that don't glorify God, but I don't know if I want to give him the key. Finally, he gives Jesus the key. Jesus cleans it out. It's better than ever before. And he concludes his book, Let, by saying... Then a thought came to me. I said to myself, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room. No sooner have I cleared it than another room is dirty. Had that experience? I begin on the second room. The first room becomes dusty again. I'm so tired and weary of trying to maintain a clean heart in an obedient life. I'm just not up to it. So I ventured a question. Lord, 
Is there any chance that you would just take over the responsibility of the whole house and operate it for me? Just as you did that closet, would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? I could see his face light up. And he replied, certainly, that's what I came to do. You cannot be victorious in your own strength. That's impossible. Let me do it through you and for you. This is the way. But he added slowly, I am not owner of this house. I am just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. I saw it in a minute and dropping to my knees, I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I am going to be the servant and you are going to be the Lord. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house, describing the assets, the liabilities, the situation and condition. And returning to him, I eagerly signed over to him to belong to him alone for eternity. Here, here it all is, all that I am and have forever. Now you run the house. I'll just remain with you as a houseboy and a friend. He took my life that day. And I can give you my word, there is no better way to live the Christian life than this way. He knows how to keep it in shape and deep peace settles down on the soul. He felt at home. Let's pray together. Lord, we have um, a body that is called the temple of the Holy Spirit, our physical body. But Lord, though we have physical life and mental life, there is also that that ability to really live apart from the crowd, apart from the rest of the caterpillars who are mostly dead. Lord, help us live above that fray with a different motivation, a different sense. Lord, I pray that as we live that life, we'd understand who you are by experience and as you reveal more and more of you to us. We would obey what we read. We would respond to in obedience what you reveal so that more might be revealed and we would grow. Some of us, Lord, find that we have crusty hearts. The truth does not penetrate like it once did. Maybe we need to go back to that place where we've disobeyed. Ask you to change that, clean that room. And we do. In these seconds of silence... You know and we know what they are. We ask for healing there, Lord. We ask for change in our lives. Lord, we pray for anyone who doesn't know You here tonight that they would come to know Christ. But we pray for all of those who do know You tonight, who do know Christ, but who aren't living in obedience to His will. Help us that we might be more and more intimate with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.